Welcome to Awaken to Sleep Education. My name is Chad. I am a director of operations here at Awaken to Sleep, and I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Mona Patel uh, as our speaker tonight. Uh, Dr. Mona is uh, faculty with Clinical Mastery Series and also Awaken to Sleep, and she has officially retired from general dentistry to pursue a career as a sleep coach. And that was all made possible because she did this crazy amount of CE continuing education on really restorative dentistry and sleep apnea, TND, and really looking at how all these things work together. And as a result, was able to build sleep in her practice over several years, selling her practice, and now retiring to do this as a full-time passion. So she's going to be sharing with us today the, the fundamentals, the foundation of how to build sleep into your general dentistry practice. Real quick, you have a little um, raise hand button on your webinar screen. If you could raise your hand if you are a general dentist here that is um, looking to implement sleep into your practice. Uh, we've got one, two. Okay, there we go. We've got a couple. Thanks, guys. So we've got a couple of you guys here that are in this boat, and Dr. Mona is, is a great resource for you. So with that, Dr. Mona, if you don't mind, uh, let's let's get started. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here and spending the next hour or so with you. And I'm sure all of you guys have had a uh, probably a long day at work, and I'm glad that you're you know logged in to to hear me speak a little bit about dental sleep medicine. So I mean, I've been in practice for gosh. 30 years. I saw my practice in 2019, just before COVID. So I was really lucky there. And, um, you know, I'm all about comprehensive care. And it um, really started to involve dental sleep medicine about maybe eight to nine years ago when I myself was diagnosed with um, mild sleep apnea. And as I started to learn more and more about this and started to um, offer this to my patients, I realize that there's definitely some challenges um, when it comes to putting a dental sleep uh, medicine program into your office, um, especially you're practicing restorative dentistry every day, and now you're, you're adding this whole other wheelhouse, right, to your practice. So I wanted to kind of share some things that worked with me and some of the things that maybe weren't so great to do as well. Um, so, uh, Yes, I'm a, a big uh, nerd when it comes to sci-fi. I love everything Star Wars and Marvel. So you're gonna see some of these things here um, and I hope it brings a smile to your face. But going back to the challenges, one of the biggest challenges is even, do I want to do this in my practice? Do I, should I be offering you know, treatment, um, helping patients get diagnosed for uh, a sleep disorder? Well, here's the thing. We know it's a medical condition. But the relationship between bruxism and dental sleep disorders are just growing stronger and stronger. And we see bruxism every day in our practice. We treat it. We treat the symptoms of bruxism, you know, cracked teeth, worn teeth. We um, see the damage caused by it. Uh, you know, dentitions that are so broken down where patients are losing teeth and you're placing implants. Our treatment plans depend on us knowing that our patient bruxes and how to protect the dentistry that we're going to be doing afterwards, right? We also help people who snore. They come to us and probably like me, many of you have made snore guards for our patients. But the thing is, snoring is not just a benign 
condition. Snoring is um, the first step on that ladder to sleep issues. It can, it can progress to a worsened condition that can lead to some really big health factors. So again, being aware of dental sleep issues in your practice and having a program to discuss it with the patients and get a pathway for them in place is super important, I think, especially nowadays. Um, so much talk is being put on sleep. So I want to tell you about my hygienist husband, Patrick. And I really wish you could have all met him. He's one of the nicest guys. Um, but he really would come into the office and he'd be tired. You know, he's the patient who maybe would be 10 minutes late or the patient who might have forgotten his appointment. Uh, and every time he would come in, he'd be like, hi, Dr. Patel. And then we would talk about how, you know, he knows he clenches and grinds and that he knows that he needs a night guard, but there would never be any follow through. And then he would go away and he would never schedule. And, and his wife was a hygienist at my practice, but he was just, just like, blah, you know? And finally he broke a tooth. He broke tooth number 30. And it was actually a, a tooth that was not restored, but he sheared a, a, the mesial cusp off of it. And uh, so we had to treat the tooth. And we also had to make him a night guard to protect his teeth. That was the original plan, right? That we had talked about all these years about the fact that he bruxes. Well, I, started to learn about sleep just a little bit before then. And I actually had Patrick tested uh, because I wanted to make sure that there was no underlying sleep issues. I don't know what made me get him tested, but it was a couple of things on his medical history, reflux. Um, he was also on, on Ritalin for ADHD. He doesn't look like your typical sleep patient, right? He doesn't have a big neck. His BMI looks like it's in normal range, but there was something just not quite right about um, Patrick and his health history. And once he got tested, we did come back with a positive uh, diagnosis, mild sleep apnea, and we treated him. And how did we treat him? We treated tooth number 30 with the restoration. And then instead of making him a night guard, I made him an appliance to help with the sleep apnea. I made him a mandibular advancement device. And lo and behold, when he came back for his eight week follow-up, he actually was a little more energetic, a little bit more vital. He was excited to share that he'd started going to the gym and that he could help Rachel, his wife at home with the baby and things were just better for him overall. But more importantly, he actually um, had stopped taking the Ritalin. He didn't need it. And so I share that story with you just to show that one little shift in my mindset and the way I looked at my patients when it came to sleep apnea totally changed a person's life. And I really wish that for you as well. Uh, I, I really hope that, that this will open you um, your eyes to what we can do for our patients. So 30% of Americans are affected by um, OSA. It just affects everyone, not just, you know, older patients. It affects um, our children, young adults adults my age and our seniors. And left untreated, if we don't let our patients know about the fact that they might have an issue, it could take up to 12 years off their lives. I mean, it increases the risk of death by 46%. In fact, it's actually more dangerous than smoking. 
in this day and age, it's so easy to deprioritize sleep, right? Um, we allow work. I mean, when we get busy, you know, work, our schedules, our schoolwork, life, we allow all of that to dictate how much we sleep. We actually give up resting. And when we don't sleep long enough, and when we don't have good quality sleep, we have many repercussions to our health. And sleep not only affects you, if you're not sleeping well, and you're snoring, or you're restless, or you're waking up at, at nighttime to go to the bathroom, because when you have sleep apnea, sometimes that happens, and ask me how I know, um, but it can affect your partner, right? And your partner now has fragmented sleep. They're having low quality sleep, and it's going to affect their health also. It's like secondhand smoking, right? And what we're finding more and more is that couples are sleeping in separate rooms. Um, I think 25% of couples in America are sleeping separately. I know for sure when I started snoring, uh, my husband and I started to sleep in separate rooms. Now, systemic disease and sleep is so heavily connected. We know that there's issues with heart disease, the risk of stroke goes up so much. I mean, in a snorer, having, having sleep apnea will increase your risk of a stroke two times. In an obese snorer versus a non-snorer, eight times. You, I mean, it just is profound how much uh, sleep can affect our health. And, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, weight management, but not only is it our systemic health, right? It also affects our mental um, health. Sleep and not sleeping well, fragmented sleep or a short amount of sleep, reduced sleep, can be connected with anxiety and depression. It can be connected to Alzheimer's. And, you know, in our kids, a lot of our, our kids are being labeled with ADHD, but studies are showing that it could be a sleep issue and not this label. So very important for us to help identify it for our patients and help them to get onto the right pathway. And, you know, we've got physical and, and disease and we've got mental disease, but what's the social impact? I mean, it's a domino effect. I know for myself, when I wasn't sleeping in the same room as my husband, after a couple of weeks, I didn't feel really happy about it, you know, a little depressed about it, a little isolated. So it's a, it's a domino effect, like I said. So why does it affect us so much, right? In really simple terms, it is oxidative stress. Um, it, not having a proper night's sleep and compromising our oxygenation can create oxidative stress that really is harmful to us on a cellular level. If you don't breathe freely, your intermittent oxygen shortages contributes to this stress and you start to get damage to the cells and the proteins in the cells. And that is why we get all of the heart diseases, um, the risk of stroke. It, Oxidative stress and inflammatory markers and an overactive sympathetic system when your body's under stress will affect the endothelial linings of the blood vessels. They get damaged. Um, your metabolism is affected. Your hormones are thrown off. And you start to see that stress, uh, hypertension, cholesterol um, is high, 
diabetes, and there's lesser known issues like for myself, hypothyroidism. When you're not sleeping well, you're in fight flight syndrome. My cortisol and adrenaline levels increasing at nighttime, cortisol affecting your T3 synthesis to T4, and next thing you know, you're hypothyroid. AFib, um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, cancer. There's now studies showing how colon cancer, prostate cancer, and breast cancer are um, connected to sleep deprivation. Uh, one of the reasons behind that could be the fact that when we have, they, there was a really great study shown, and when we have a sleep, um, when we limit our, uh, our sleep by four hours, just one night, a study showed that those protective cells that kind of go after the, the cancer cells in our body um, are reduced by 70%. Just one night. I, I was floored by that. So again, in simple terms, this is how it is working. Did you have Mona, a question? Yes. I kind of, I'm, I actually want to pull the audience a little bit real quick. Sure. Um, who in the last 30 days has gotten less than six hours of sleep in one night? Less than six hours. Raise your hand. You got the little raise hand button. Okay. Wow, there's a lot of healthy folks, or some of you haven't found the button. That's okay. Um, <laughs> go ahead and put your hands down. I want to. I want to ask a question that's that's maybe a little scary now that we're we're talking about it. But who has gotten less than four hours of sleep in the last thirty days? Uh, that suddenly, you know, we just had a scary stat for less than four hours of sleep in any one night in the last thirty days. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's learning these things, by the way, completely reprioritizes your mind because you got a couple of you guys who got less than four hours of sleep. I do my best to make sure it's at least six, if not eight, every single night because of the stuff that Dr. Mona is sharing right now. And your patients don't know that either. They don't. And um, one of my favorite stories to tell patients is when I'm trying to connect it to heart disease and um, is the story there about this um, worldwide global experiment on, on sleep. It's actually called daylight savings. And in the springtime, when we lose an hour, right, just one hour, would it surprise you to know that the very next day, there is a 24% increase in heart attacks noted in hospitals? And in the autumn time, when we gain an hour, that's reduced by 21%. So just one hour can affect our systemic health so much. So I, I like to tell that story to patients to kind of make them think about it um, a little differently. But let's go back to common risk factors. Um, we all know that sleep is going to affect the maybe um, people with a little bit more um, weight on them, their BMI is a little higher, the bigger neck, um, the waist to hip ratio, all of those things. And there's many articles on that. So I'm not gonna go into detail too much, but when it comes to risk factors for sleep, we have a two day course that's really great, covers a lot of those in, in detail. So we know that obesity and, in, um, and being a man puts you at big risk for sleep issues, but we also have patients who are being missed. And that's why I shared my story about Patrick because he didn't really, I mean, he's a man, but he didn't fall into the high obesity range and he didn't have a thick neck, right? Um, 
why would I think that he had a sleep issue? Because I knew that there was a relationship between acid reflux and ADHD and sleep. Um, women who uh, are really look, not looked at as being typical sleep apnea patients, because you know when we're younger, women we have such great protective hormones. Um, we have progesterone that's working really well for us, that keeps our that actually actively keeps our pharyngeal muscles really strong, preventing a collapse, right? But as we get older, when we start to go into perimenopause and the menopausal transition, guess what? The hormones that protect our us and our airway cannot because they're reduced we actually then are more prone to having a sleep issue so my sleep issue started around my menopausal time right and a lot of my patients um, who were women later in um, in their years uh, definitely had a positive for a sleep breathing related issue and you also have subclinical patients like my daughter and a lot of my TMD and bruxism patients who are younger females, longer necks, you know, that really thin phenotype, they're petite, they have the long neck, so it's like a long, narrow airway, more prone to collapse. Um, again, we have a webinar in, I think, a few months that we're going to be talking about women and, and um, how they present with OSA. So what we have to do is we have to know our patients. We have to know their medical history. We have to observe them. Like when, when they come into the waiting room and if they're like slouched over and they're like, gotta talk to them, right? There's something going on. Um, or the patient who falls asleep in the chair or who falls asleep in the reception room. The challenge when it comes to talking to patients about dental sleep medicine is really, when I first started out, and I think a lot of us are like this, is that we talk about what our patients need with science and logic. But in reality, people make decisions on with emotion, right? And I found when I connected the health and how they were feeling and the benefits or the risks of, you know, moving forward with getting a diagnosis and then getting treatment made a, a better positive impact for moving my patient forward to treatment rather than just throwing them science. Um, so knowing all these little common risk factors and how to connect the dots really helps our patients um, move forward. So thousands of studies here have documented that correlation between um, obesity and OSA. And what they're finding is that when you lose weight, you significantly improve the um, OSA in a patient. So I wanted to bring that out because when we start to, on this journey, we need to talk to patients about their weight. And many times I've been in offices that I'm coaching where team members um, and even the dentists, you know, hey, even I did, like I felt really uncomfortable talking to patients about how much they weigh, if anything had changed, if they put on weight, but we need to start looking at the patient on a whole when it comes to their health and the weight. Menopause. 90% of women with OSA are not diagnosed with it. That's huge. That's a lot of um, patients in your practice, right? And sleep disturbances are reported by 40 to 60% of these women. And it's connected to progesterone, 
not actively helping the pharyngeal muscles to, to stop collapsing. Progesterone also has a great impact on the, the tongue, keeping that tongue strong and forward. So, and estrogen as well, that is, has a huge indirect effect on our sleep too. Now, when we see men having a sleep issue, they usually have snoring or actual witnessed apneas or they feel sleepy. Women are different. They present differently. They present more with morning headaches, depression, and anxiety. So when you're going through your health history, you're not going to see a woman um, really say yes to a lot of the sleep questions that you may, may have on your health history. But if you see anyone who has yes to anxiety medications, depression, headaches, you might want to talk to them a little bit more about sleep. Genetics play a big part, and I didn't realize this, you know, but here it is, like, if you have someone in the family that has sleep apnea, it's not uncommon for you to have it. It does run in families. And race um, has a lot to, ethnicity has a lot to do with it, you know, um, and that's to do with our weight and our craniofacial factors, you know, the anatomy that is attached to our um, ethnic uh, phenotypes. Smoking, we always ask about smoking, right? How, how much is smoking on our, everyone has smoking on our health histories is what I'm meaning to say. And why? Because we're so worried about oral cancer, right? And I wanna share with you that smoking actually can increase the amount of inflammation and fluid retention in the upper airway. And smokers actually have a longer soft palate in both the supine position and upright position. So they're gonna be more of the snorers. And because of the smoking, they have also demonstrated a much more increased nasal resistance um, because of the inflammation in the mucosa. So it's harder for them to breathe in air and then they have more inflammation in the back of their throats and the soft tissue. And so they actually are people that you wanna not just talk about or cancer with, but they are people that you wanna talk to sleep about. Alcohol, um, we all say, let's take a, let's have a, a cocktail or a glass of wine uh, before I go to bed. It's going to help me sleep better. Not so much. Alcohol is relaxing the muscles of the, the muscle tone in the upper airway. And when it's relaxed, what does everything do? Just kind of goes all loosey-goosey and tongue falls back. Soft tissues kind of lose their tone. And guess what? We've got an obstruction there and we've got an airway issue. Sedatives too. Um, all of the medications that we use for, um, you know, pain, opiates, uh, sedatives, benzodiazepine, all of those can relax the muscles again and create the same issue. And, you know, look at your health history and look at the amount of people using sleep aids. Melatonin is huge now. And now I question why someone's taking melatonin, uh, because if they're taking melatonin, they're not sleeping well. And I want to know why, you know, I want to investigate it for them. Also, a story, I had a patient who um, was taking Ambien and I never really, it never clicked for me that she was on Ambien for 15 years until I started to learn about sleep. And when I, and I talked to her about it, she's like, I don't sleep well in my doctor just says take an Ambien. And she actually needed a night guard. Um, and my hygienist picked up on the fact that there were some signs in her mouth that might be a sleep issue. So we tell the patient about it. She accepted a home sleep test. 
because we wanted to eliminate a sleep disorder before we made her a regular night guard. And guess what? She came back with severe apnea. She had no, you would never think it. You, when she came in, she was upbeat, not tired. The only thing she had on her health history was chronic pain and backache. But Ambien for 15 years, and that had hidden the fact that she had severe sleep apnea. So look at the health histories and, you know, look at, look for those sleep aids. Um, that's a huge screening tool for us in our practice. So really, in summary, we're looking at patients, we're looking at their health history, we're looking at their, you know, bruxism and TMD issues, um, and all of the things I've, I've really talked about. So let's talk a little bit about the dental side of sleep, right? Assessing, oh, you're back on again, Chad. I'm back, yeah. So I, I, I just have a question and mm -hmm. um, it, it's, you mentioned this a little bit, but I was hoping you could go over a little bit more detailed sure. is how do you bring up the conversation that you're at risk and really engage with some of those uh, touchier topics? For example, when I used to work in dental practice, I can tell you that I may not have had a job if I had mentioned weight to a patient, right? Now you're a female right. doctor, so there's some, you know, perks to to your situation versus mine. But how does how did how do how do how we do we start off? Yeah. 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 So, you know, my team is really great at opening the conversation with that. And one of the things, you know, we identify which patients we want to talk about um, sleep with because of the medical histories. And when I go in, my hygienist has already set set the stage, just like we would do for dentistry. But when I have to talk to a patient, I really just kind of say, hey, listen, you know, you're on hypertensive, for example, you're on hypertensive medication. And um, I also see some things in, in your mouth that make me think you might have a sleep issue. How do you feel in the mornings when, you, when you're waking up? Do you feel like you need a cup of coffee before you get going? Yes. Okay. How about the afternoons? Like, do you need to pick me up? Do you need another cup of coffee? Do you need an energy drink? What happens to you? And oh, you need a nap? Okay, great. And I just start asking questions about their habits that identifies to them that they might be tired because, you know, that's their normal, right? Like if you asked me when I had some apnea, are you, you know, are you tired? I'd say no, because I'm a, I'm superwoman, right? Women do everything. We're not, we don't allow ourselves to feel tired. So I ask questions to lead into letting the patients kind of connect the dots for themselves. And once they do that, I then say, you know, I did not realize that some of the things that I'm seeing in you, I just learned about and how they can be connected with not sleeping well at night. So I never say sleep apnea to them. I just talk about them not sleeping well at night and that we need more information. And that's how I lead into the conversation. And as I got better and better at it, I have much, I gained much more confidence and started to talk about weight with people and how, you know, weight can affect your, the way you sleep and how you're sleeping and all of that soft tissue and how it, the gravity, you know, and it's easier for definitely female doctors. I mean, like, you know, it's easy for me to say, Hey, if you're anything like me after, after 45, everything just kind of just started to kind of like go South. And that's what was happening in the back of my throat. Everything just started to kind of get loosey goosey and floppy. And guess what? Um, 
uh, that's where the obstruction starts. So I try and relate it a lot to, you know, um, what my team was experiencing or myself experiencing uh, with my health as well. And I will tell you, once you start getting a dental sleep program into place, one of the first things I would advise you to do is actually get your team tested, get a diagnosis for your team. And if they have any sleep issues on any level, get them treated. And when you do that, they will be your biggest advocates and them sharing their journey with your patients opens the door really nicely. So hopefully that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the biggest objections that I had to um, from, from patients, and I will tell you, not a lot of patients had objections. When patients are not feeling well or not sleeping well, deep down, they really know it. And um, you'll only, you'll not get as many objections as you think. But when you do, like one of the biggest ones for us was like, why are you a dental office talking to me about this? And um, I would just tell them that, hey, I did not realize that the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine and the ADA um, have been telling dentists that they should be screening for sleep issues, just like we screen for oral cancer and we screen for periodontal disease and we screen for um, decay. So I just kind of off the bat say, hey, I wasn't aware, but guess what? Now I'm aware this is part of my comprehensive oral evaluation, just like I do everything for you when it comes to your teeth and your gums and your soft tissues. I'm also looking at your airway as well. Who, who better to? We spend so much time with you. You're here twice a year for an hour with my hygienist. And here I am chatting to you for at least 10 minutes. You don't get that much time with your physician. So um, we're in the best place possible to take care of you. And really, let's look at some quick relevant dental history. Again, this is really a brief overview, but I want to point out some things that maybe you hadn't thought could be connected to sleep. One of my biggest things is night guards, right? So I hope that some of you have had my experience where, because I don't want to be alone in this, but when you've made night guards and um, the patients don't wear them because they just can't get used to them and they hate them. And how many times like a patient will come in and say, hey, you know that thing you made me? I always find it on the floor in the morning. Like I just can't wear it. I rip it out and I, or I throw it across the room or it's just, I, I can't do it, Dr. Patel. And you know what? Before I would be like, oh no, like do I give them their money back? Do I pretend that, that it never happened? And then we never talk about it in their hygiene visits. Now, what I found out going through my sleep journey is, and there's a great study, um, Giles Levin did this study, but an upper night guard can worsen an existing sleep issue. So if you have a patient who's not tolerating that upper night guard, um, think about it. They don't have a lot of space in their mouth. They might have a really big tongue. It's got nowhere to go. And you put this piece of plastic in their mouth and guess what? When they go to bed, especially on their back, number one, that tongue is fighting the plastic. So it goes, falls back, creates that obstruction, or it's a, a real nice flat plane night guard. Um, you know, my assistants took the impressions for it. They took the bite record. We needed to protect the teeth. They ordered the, the night guard. 
you put that night guard in and it's like a skating rink for that lower jaw to move around. Patient goes on their back. Guess what? That lower jaw kind of has um, a way of just falling back. And again, we now get like that narrowing of the airway, right? So night guards, um, failed night guards are a great um, indicator of a possible sleep issue. But you know, people who have a hard time having dental work done. I had a patient, Farrell, who um, I had to do quadrant dentistry on. And every time I would take him back, he would fall asleep. But more than that, my assistant and I noticed that he started to go gray. He was actually not breathing when we took him back. And he had these huge tori on his mandible and his tongue couldn't sit there and it would fall back. And so did we get him diagnosed? Yes. And he was actually severe and he's in a CPAP. So any, any, you know, look at your patients from a dental point of view, you know, the, the patients who fight you when you're in the mouth, you know, their tongue is like pushing you out. Think about gag reflexes too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyone with a huge gag reflex might have a sleep issue. So again, there are a lot of dental signs and I'm just going to point out a couple of, of ones here, but you know, bruxism, wear. Studies have shown how, you know, the, the wear on your teeth um, is connected to having a sleep disorder breathing issue, crowding, abfractions, narrow buccal corridors, um, you know, where there's not a lot of room for the tongue. Like I tell patients, you know, you have too much furniture in the room. So I never want to tell anyone they have a big tongue, right? Um, so that's my case. Like if you actually had to look in my mouth, there's not a lot of space back there. I have, I just have a very small room for my tongue. Um, this is one of my patients, abfraction lesions. If you see these NCCLs, um, non-carious lesions at the, at the gingiva, that's a big sign, again, of the clusal load, um, bruxism connected to a sleep issue. Vaulted palates and, you know, foreshortened palates or all of these things are taking away space for the tongue. Even tori, like palatal tori or lingual tori, the real estate that the tongue should have is not there. And so all it does is kind of go back and create that erupt, uh, obstruction. Acid erosion or GUD is huge with sleep. And, you know, 80% of Americans report that they have their GERD system, uh, symptoms get worse at nighttime. And GERD and um, acid reflux is actually also associated with anxiety and depression. And all of them are connected to poor sleep quality. So when you see someone and Patrick, my um, hygienist husband that I shared his, his story with, he actually had acid reflux. Um, and again, TMD, where? And he was positive for sleep apnea. Tongue tie, um, proper positioning of the tongue. But when you have a tongue tie, you don't have a tongue that's moving and I would say exercising. So the strength of the tongue is not great. And the tongue actually, activates the genoglossus muscle, the tongue actually activates your pharyngeal muscles to stop them from collapsing. So if you have a weaker tongue, it's less stability for your pharyngeal muscles. So now going back to how, with that information, you, you can see that you, you'll have patients, you'll go into work tomorrow and you'll be like, huh, oh, 
yeah, I think that might be a person who might have a sleep issue. But how do you actually start to talk about it? You now know or you can identify patients in your chair that are not the typical sleep patient, right? So what do you do? Well, you got to ask questions, right? But who asks the questions? Got to make it team driven. For you to have a successful DSM program in your practice and also be doing restorative um, dentistry, to do them side by side, you really have to have a great team driven program. And so you really want to clarify for your team members what their roles are in that program, right? So I had two assistants as a restorative dentist. When I started to do sleep dentistry, one was my restorative assistant and one was my sleep queen. Okay, and they had the defined roles when it came to the processes in the office. Um, active listening. So you want to give your team tools to be able to communicate with patients. Okay, um, when you do that, you're empowering your team. But here's here's an example. When I first started, what didn't work for us when I first started um, doing sleep, I had gone to so many courses that they talk about screening and using forms and filling out forms. And that's what we started to do. But we noticed that it wasn't working for us. Well, you know what? My hygienist would bring the patient back, go over the medical history, whip out a screener and just start asking questions. None of the questions made sense to the patient because it was about sleep and not dentistry. And we hadn't actually connected the dots for the patient. So all we did was allow the patient to prepare an objection when we started to talk about sleep. So just having forms to give out without proper communication skills is, is a downfall. How do, we, how do we train our team members to do that? Um, you know, active listening is huge. And so we did a lot of role-playing in our practice and there's great active listening exercises. Um, one of them is just, when you, you know, the team members would pair up and they would, one would be the interviewer and one would be the interviewee. And the interviewer would ask the interviewer question and the next question would be based on the answer from the interviewee. So that had to make that person listen. And so we practiced that a lot. And um, it's amazing how much we actually talk over patients in an, in an effort to prove how much we know. and in actuality, it stops our patients from learning. So active listening is huge. Um, but I, I definitely would, would recommend getting your team enrolled on this. Um, so let's talk about screeners. I kind of touched on that. Um, I went to many sleep courses and I'm sure some of you guys have already been to sleep courses and have done webinars like this. And you know that there's the Epworth sleepiness scale, right? It's the golden standard. Oh my gosh, we have to fill that out. But in reality, why do we need that? We really need it to get medical coverage, right? That's one of the requirements of the form. And if you actually go through the form and you sit down and have a patient fill it out, you'll realize it's very subjective. So when I filled out an, an Epworth um, sleepiness form, my score was like five, which is like, I'm not even tired, but I was choking 14 times an hour when I went to sleep, right? So for me, the Epworth sleepiness scale is not a big screening tool. It might be a tool to monitor a patient 
and for follow-up visits, but not really to screen and identify an issue. I did prefer the stop bang form. Uh, that was a, a, a form where it talks about the snoring, the weight, um, neck size, and gender. And why I liked it was when you look it up on Google, um, you can see that it has risk categories. So it has low risk, intermediate, and high risk. And so when I told a patient they were intermediate or high risk, it was more of a motivating factor. And I used to use a lot of forms and I used to annoy my team a lot because I'd be like, oh, go get the screeners and we need to get a screener. And then they would have to spend extra time talking to the patient and filling out a form. And um, now what do I do? I really don't use a screener in my office. Um, none of my team uses a screener. It's an organic conversation based on our prep work on knowing their health history, talking to the patient about how they're feeling and just asking the right questions and active listening. And if we have to, we'll get the start bank, but pretty much that conversation is a two minute conversation. We don't give a patient that our patients a laundry list of everything that we see that's wrong with them. They don't take that well. You just pick two or three things. Um, you know, um, gosh, you're like me. Uh, you you have too much furniture in the room, and oh, you know, you're on, you have hypertension and you have diabetes. And you know what? When I think about all of those things together, and the fact that when you go to sleep and your tongue doesn't have any space and it's falling back you may have some sleep issues. Do you feel like you wake up well rested? No, actually doctor, I, I actually don't sleep very well. And you just start opening that conversation up. Um, another huge one is the elbow test. And the elbow test is when you ask a spouse, you know, or, or a patient, do you snore? Have you, you know, have you been told that you snore? No, nope, I don't snore, I don't snore at all. So I'm like, a lot of times I say to the guys like, hey, um, do you have bruised ribs like anywhere in your body that aches? And they're like, why? And I'm like, your wife doesn't elbow you? And they're like, oh, actually, yeah, I always get shoved by my wife to move. And I'm like, well, why does she need you to move at nighttime? And they look at me and they're like, oh, so I don't make any noise. So it's just leading that patient to the conclusion that they might have an issue. Um, we have a list of questions here, you know, um, these are complaints that patients might have, but what I do, what I, the takeaway I want for you is to take some of the signs, connect it to how they're feeling, you know, and ask them what it would mean to them if they felt better. So it's getting a, their pain point connected to how they're feeling and then obtaining their victory. And when you can give that to a patient and the possibility that they're gonna feel better, it's huge. Um, some of, these are some of the openers we might use at their office, but um, some of mine are like, you know, do you need to pick me up in the afternoon? Um, do you need a nap? Um, so I was at an office coaching in Seattle and uh, we were talking about the team having any sleep issues. And there's a hygienist there and his name is Ray. And he's like, I don't, I don't have any sleep issues. I'm fine, I'm fine. And I'm like, okay, and how are you in the afternoons? Everything's good? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I take a nap at lunch, but otherwise I'm fine. Every day he would go out and have a nap at lunch, but he didn't connect that to having a sleep issue. So 
again, questions and leading to how they're feeling and connecting the dots for the patients. Yes, Chad. So on these grid openers, um, we've got a question uh, messaged privately to me is how, how do we get our teams to ask these questions? You know, you talked about the culture, but yeah, how do you get them to do that? So we actually come up with a plan. Like we, we sit down, we'll have a team meeting. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me uh, was that I asked my team for help to save lives and they really couldn't say no. <laughs> no, they, they were on board and uh, we had to come up with a plan. And what that means is, remember, just as uncomfortable as you are stepping into something new, your team is just or even more uncomfortable. So you want to give them those tools and you can do that with cheat sheets on the question. So, you know, when we first started out, I made a wellness questionnaire, which had a lot of these questions on them. Um, and it was a cheat sheet. And we would ask those questions. And then after a few weeks, because we were talking about it so much, we didn't even need that anymore. But you've got to come up with a plan with your team. And that's really sitting down and saying, hey, this is an action that we're going to need to take. How would you open a conversation? And then let's role play. So um, let me, I'm going to get into that a little bit later too. I have a slide on that, Chad. So I know that I half answered that question, but I will get to it. Okay. And this is what an internal referral looks like, like the flow of it. Um, again, this is the big picture that my team and I sat down and came up with that this is what we wanna do. Morning huddle, we wanna identify at-risk patients. We're gonna screen their health history, the dental history. We're gonna communicate it in the morning huddle so that the doctor is aware that this patient is possibly gonna have a talk about sleep. The hygienist does all the heavy lifting in a very organic conversation. She doesn't need to pull out forms as she does this more and more. At the beginning, absolutely. Any tool that makes your team member more comfortable, use it. But what you'll find is as you go by, you know, weeks, couple of months, you're not going to be relying on those tools anymore. You're really going to be just relying on your conversation with the patient. The biggest thing is then identifying how the hygienist lets the doctor know in a very organic way about the findings that she's um, having with a patient. Uh, so, you know, it could sound something like this, like I'll go into an office, uh, into my hygiene room and I'll be like, hey, Julia, um, you know, any changes in the medical, I mean, obviously I say hello to the patient and all, but I'd be like any changes to the medical history and um, Julia would say, no, you know what, Doug's still on hypertensive medications, Doc, and um, he's also started taking cholesterol medications. And I'm like, okay. And um, then she'll be like, Doc, while you're in there checking on tooth number 15, uh, there was a cavity, um, an area that I wanted you to check on 15. But while you're in there, can you just check the back of Doug's throat? Um, his tongue sits really high. And when I noticed that, I actually asked Doug a few questions about how he feels about his sleep. Um, and Doug, um, is that right? You don't wake up well rested. And Doug's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really sleep well. And um, my wife tells me I snore. And suddenly now we've opened up the door. We don't talk about mal and patty. We don't talk about pharyngeal grade. We just talk in very simple terms and we connect it all. But that 
conversation was a two minute conversation with a patient. Guess what? We didn't put the hygienist behind. She didn't get stressed out. She wasn't late for a patient. And guess what? She's going to continue to do that. But the minute this gets complicated and we add more to it and us doctors, um, if we reinvent the wheel and talk about it all over again with the patient, we are now putting a roadblock into screening for sleep because if we make our hygienist late, guess what? She's less likely to want to do a screening because it's stressful, right? So we all have to be aware of time. But anyway, we find a way for the hygienist to, to let me know uh, that connecting the dots for the patient. And then I have to be really clear in talking to Doug, I don't go back into, oh, Doug, your tongue sits high. And, you know, did you know this? Did you? No, my hygienist has covered this. I trust my team. And you know what? That took a lot of work. Um, you really have to let go of control. And I mean, hopefully some of you are like me, but, you know, um, that was my biggest issue. I had to do it all right. But anyway, my action then is got to be super, super simple. I'm like, oh my gosh, Doug, you know what? Julie is right. Like when I'm looking in there, there's definitely some issues with how your tongue's sitting. And, you know, the fact that you're on hypertensive medications, I think then that we need a little bit more information. And then what I'll do is I'll just look at my hygienist and say, hey, Julia, can you schedule Doug for an hour? He, he needs work on number 15. And then at the same time, let's get him scheduled with, you know, a home sleep test. And sometimes I'll do it from my office. Sometimes I will refer the patient out to the sleep MD. And that pathway is already decided beforehand, right? But I've given a clear action and I've not held up the hygiene appointment. And then my hygienist will do a really good handoff to the front desk who has been identified as the sleep admin, and she will do the scheduling and the financial discussion for the sleep test, not for any treatment because we don't have a diagnosis, but just for the sleep test. And then she'll make sure that if the sleep test is coming from our office, she scheduled a consult. So we have a very particular pathway and steps that every team member is aware what their role is. And that's the success that we have. It's being aware of time. It's all hands on deck. Everyone has to know what they're doing. And we follow the patient pathway every time. And it's just the repetition within a few months will make you experts. Um, and that's how it worked for me. And that's how it works for all the, de the dentists that I coach and their, their team members. So here's some actions for you guys. Uh, you could go into your office and schedule a team meeting. Um, what, as your team sit and you sit down, what would you say? What will you say to a patient when you start to introduce sleep screenings? You know, think of the verbal. Think of a um, sentences and let each team member practice it on their own and make it their own. The more you practice as a team, the smoother it gets and I'm a big big fan of role play on you know in in having these discussions because a lot of times our discomfort makes it awkward and if we're uncomfortable our team is uncomfortable so let's let's empower our team to have really great conversations and that comes with training and practice um, make sure how is that how is your hygienist going to open the door for you to talk about sleep 
or that let you know that she's identified that there's a connection for the patient and that um, she's talked to the patient about it. For me, it was a visual. Like I would go into the room and I know that she would have like on her wrap, like she, we would use route sheets, even though we were paperless, but you can use a post-it or something. And, you know, that would just signal that this might be a sleep patient. So, well, by the time I've washed my hands and I'm gloving up, I already know that I, I've got to be prepped with my sleep bubbles, right? It's all the visual clues. Um, dentists, doctors, be very specific on the next step what you are prescribing the next step. You're not the dentist. And if you were anything like me when I was a younger dentist, I had to show the patient, I had to tell them all the science behind it. And then guess what? I'd end up talking them out of treatment. The best thing that you can do is talk less. I was way more successful when I stopped speaking. And so basically I put on my physician's hat. I look at the patient and I say, yeah, I need more information. Just like you would need, um, you know, when you're seeing your doctor and they need to diagnose something, they're gonna recommend a blood test. I am recommending a sleep evaluation, a sleep test. And that's all I say. And you want your hygienist to give your admin a really good hand up. So your admin knows that scheduling here is involving a sleep test or a sleep consult, okay? So just really providing clear actions to the next step having a plan in place ahead of time definitely helps treatment acceptance better. And practicing it makes it easier to have that conversation. Just like, you know, we all know about muscle memory, right? You know, you do a, a certain exercise and you have that muscle memory. Well, same thing, when you practice these conversations and these roles and you identify it all, when you actually have to do it with a patient, it is so much more comfortable and less awkward for your team members. And so here's my challenge to you. Um, and this is how we started. And go ahead, Chad, you have a question? Oh, no, you're good. You're just getting oh, the answer. I'm gonna, I thought yeah, it popped back yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, we started by identifying two patients a day. And uh, we would, in the morning huddle, the you know go over the medical history, all of the things that we would think um, we would need to know if we were going to screen them. And then we would say, OK, you know, how are they uh, time-wise? Listen, if you've got two emergencies and a hygiene patient and a restorative patient, do you think that you're going to be mindful of doing that sleep screening? No. So you got to figure that out. But if you figure it out before you're in that moment, it makes it so much easier. So planning, 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 and, um, you know, make sure that your admin is available at the time that the hygienist is dismissing the patient. So everything just really flows well. Um, so that's my challenge to you guys. And I will tell you, my two hygienists, we started um, two patients a day, and I think it was at week three when they came to me and they said, uh-uh, we've got we've, we've to screen everyone and we're comfortable screening everyone. So that's my challenge. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, we, we do have a couple of questions, everyone, but we are getting close to that hour mark. So we do want to kind of wrap up uh, with a couple little notes uh, for you to consider, and then we'll go through some questions. So one, uh, Dr. Mona, if you could go, go forward a slide or two. Oh, yeah. Oh, I lost myself. You know, when you have to work with three screens. <laughs> uh, one, we, we know, and actually go ahead and go to the next one for me. Um, we know that there are more questions that you probably have. We know that this is a complex topic and that 
um, implementing a new procedure, a new offering, a new screening format, uh, adding something to your morning huddle can be challenging. And so we um, at Awaken Sleep here, our coaching team wants to offer a free co coaching call for you and your questions. Uh, if you aren't sure exactly what to do or what's next for you, this is a, a great tool to do. You can use your phone to actually scan the QR code and get to the scheduling portal um, or go to awakensleep.com forward slash questions if you want to schedule a free call. Um, and then lastly, uh, as part of our courses, and actually Dr. Mona is an instructor with us, we also have a special offer for our two-day courses. This course is a two-day from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time immersive experience with you and your team. Uh, Dr. Mona talked a lot about team today and how when they're calibrated, they know exactly what to do. Uh, every person who attends both days will get 14 CE credits, and it's for you, the doctor, and four additional team members for a total of 70 CEs that we can give you and your team. So if your CE, your uh, hygienist need CEs or you need CEs, this course is going to be there. Dr. Mona is going to be there um, on our May course, I believe is her next course. But yep. we have Dr. Greg Manning, who's a 10-year dental sleep medicine veteran, who's going to be teaching our course this month and next month. And uh, we want to discount that down to $597. That includes you, the doctor, and your four team members for that one price. And uh, yeah, Dr. Mona, if you, I don't know if you want to say anything else before we get to questions. I mean, I think that if you're just starting out on your sleep medicine, you know, dental sleep program, uh, this two-day overview is really amazing because number one, it's virtual. It's really interactive. You don't have to take your team anywhere. It's done from your office and you will have time to sit down and make a plan with them uh, during that whole time that you're learning about the flow, the financial conversations, appliance selection. I even do a very, um, a, a little thing on clinical records and how to take the bite as well. So I think it's really a great way to start on this journey. Yeah. Uh, question for you. You helped us build and shape this course because of your experience in, in building your own program. What would you say is your favorite takeaway for practices following in the course? Um, I would say um, the plan. You will leave there with actually, like what I love about it, um, not many courses you go to actually give you an action plan to put things into place. Um, just like, you know, like I'll go to courses and, and again, I'll go to sleep course and they'll give me all the, the signs that I'll see in the mouth, but they don't give me a way to talk to the patient or what is the next step? How do we get that patient? How do we get the team talking to the patient? And that's what I love about um, the fact with this course, it's about actions, you know, um, when I go to a course, I don't just have my manual that they give me. I have um, three little notepads and it's an action list for the dentist. That's me. Action list for my hygienist, action list for my assistant, and then action list for my office manager. And I get, I make sure that we have actions because that's what you need when you're trying to implement a program into your place. It doesn't matter if it's sleep, implants, whatever. Cool. So, yeah. Well, um, if you guys have questions, please throw, put them in the chat, put them in the question and answer section. I've got two or three questions that we had throughout the event. Our team is posting the CE link in the chat right now. So you can grab that CE. And if you got to go, get out of here, have a great evening. Uh, if you got a few minutes to stick around, then please feel free to stick around as we go through a couple of these questions. Uh, first question is you talked a lot about how to get the 
the patient desk, how to start the conversation, but what happens yes. if the patient says no? So I, this took a really long time to learn. And um, I basically say in the nicest, most quietest, non-judgmental way, wow, okay, are you able to share with me why you feel that way? I'd love to understand what's behind your decision. And then I shut up and I wait and I wait. And then finally they say something. And again, that's a very learned thing for me, right? But once I started doing that, I started to, I created a space for the patients to actually share what was going on. And, you know, the assumption is either finances, um, you know, expensive, the thought of expensive procedures or something like that. It's not a lot of the time it's fear, but once I'm able to get to what's, what's behind that statement of no, then I can educate them further and lead them down that educational path to help them make the right decision for them. I'm not there, you know, the intention is not to sell an or appliance. The intention is to um, identify a disease in my patient, get the diagnosis, and then have them get the best treatment option for them. And, you know, asking just that simple question has opened up many doors. Believe me, I wasn't born, um, I didn't come out of the womb knowing how to talk to people. I learned one of the biggest um, things that helped me was this great book called uh, Change Your Questions, Change Your Life. And when you come from a different aspect of just wanting to understand what, why the patient is saying what they're saying, it changes the culture. And that's what we're trying to do in your offices, you know, changing the culture of your, of your office to be able to get to that objection. Awesome. Uh, I, we, I know that you talked about earlier uh, looking at not having to use a screening form because, you know, you use all these other signs, but yeah. for the teams that, that can't get around that, what screening form would you recommend they start with because yeah. their team needs something? Absolutely. I have, um, I use a start bank. I actually have a pictorial um, evaluator. So I, you know, at first we thought we needed to show and tell the patients. So we would just circle all the things, like it's a picture of things that um, would would be linked to sleep apnea in the mouth and we would circle them and show the patient. And then my wellness questionnaire, um, you know, just opening questions about their health and how they slept to be able to know what to ask. So those are the three things that I would use. All right, cool. Well, um, I think that actually is our last question. We did have someone who said they can't open the CE certificate link. I tried to copy it and paste it for you, but that didn't seem to work. Um, so that will be emailed to you all at the end here. Let's post it again. Um, if you can go there, if you have any problems ask, accessing your documents, please feel free to email our team. Other than that, I think we're done for tonight. Um, thank you guys for sticking around all the way through here. We hope this gave you the tools you need to at least start those conversations. And uh, if we can help you with anything else, please let us know. We'll keep this room open for a few moments. Um, Dr. Mona, is there any closing thoughts that you want to share? You know, it's a, it's a journey, um, but you got to start somewhere. And that's just by asking those questions. Once you get comfortable with that, everything else falls into place. 
Awesome. Oh, actually, we did get another question. Do you only use questionnaires or do you ask patients to get sleep tests every time? Oh, it depends on the answers. Um, most of the time, if we're asking those questions, it's probably because they have a sleep issue that's pretty evident to us. And most of the time, we're just really connecting it for the patient. But the next step really is always going to be recommending a to get a diagnosis and you can only diagnose with a home sleep test or a, a lab test. And depending on the patient, depends on their pathway, which testing pathway we wanna take them through. Okay, I'll ask a follow-up question. Um, what, what most patients, cause I know you, you do dictate probably based on neurological science, but for most patients, what were you doing? Did you have your own equipment in house? And what did that I flow did. look like? I did. Um, <laughs> Starting at your dental sleep medicine program, it, it's, it's, it's one of those really tough ones because, you know, you go to courses and they're like, you've got to work with physicians and absolutely you have to work with physicians. You've got to get, you know, a really good reputation working with sleep physicians in your area. The problem is that physicians don't want to work with you if you're green, like they don't know you, they don't know what you do, they don't know who you are. And it's really hard to get one-on-one -on -one with them, especially if you haven't any experience. And um, so how do you get the experience? So my thought process was I'm going to use my existing patient pool. I'm going to get them home. I have a home seat test in, in office because in the state that I was practicing in Pennsylvania, I was able to administer that first home seat test. Again, I can't diagnose it. Patient knows that, but we'll give you the test. You'll return the test. We will upload the data and our, our sleep physician will read that data and give us a diagnosis and a report. And then, so that was how I was able to get uh, diagnosis, prescriptions and um, moving into treatment acceptance really quickly. So I was able to uh, build up my experience quicker. Yeah. Because if, and if I wait, yeah, if I waited for a physician to refer um, to me, it might be one a month or one every two months. And the thing is that you can tell your patient, I need you to go see this physician, give them the, the card. You can even send a referral. Um, and I will tell you your sleep physician, if you write a referral, please do not write mal and patty, tongue high. Um, what they really just wanna know is the patient's tired and they have um, excessive daytime sleepiness. That's really all they need to know. Um, okay. Yeah, but most of the time patients wouldn't go and then they'd come back and the hygiene and be like, you know, we develop pools and nothing would have happened. And then you're back at square one again in six months. And I will say, if you need an interpreting physician, Awaken Sleep does have MDs in every state for our interpretation service. We're happy to read your reports for you and with you and, uh, and get you those back within three business days with an MD license in your state. So we do have some more questions. Uh, Lisa asked, can you share your questions form um, we do have the ability to, um, you can respond actually to the email that's going to come after your course. I believe we have a copy of that. Is that right? Yeah, you have my, um, yeah, you have the, it's called the wellness questions chat. So you'll have Perfect. it. Perfect. Awesome. Lisa, or if anyone else you want to um, respond to the email that you're going to be getting later, our team will send you over that form. Also, uh, we give her form away as a part of our course. So if you want to come to the course, we give her form and a bunch of others. So yeah. plug. Uh, Sam asked again, if patients try a night guard, 
first for bruxism and cannot tolerate it, how do you persuade them to get a sleep appliance, which is even bigger? I actually, no, not necessarily. They're not necessarily bigger, um, but I, it got to a point in my practice that I didn't make a night guard without eliminating a sleep disorder. And that's exactly how I tell a patient. Um, I need, you need an appliance. We know that because you have hot muscles, you're grinding, you feel it, you've got headaches, you've got wear on your teeth. They all, you know, but I don't know what appliance I'm going to make you. So and, can I, can I rephrase that just so mm -hmm. I can make sure I understood and also everyone else, you made sure to test every single patient who was going to get a night guard with a home sleep test before you yeah. were going to make them that guard. Yeah. And because okay. you know what, TMD and sleep disorders are so connected. So I would just, I had to make sure I had the right diagnosis. And that's what I would tell the patient. I'm like, without this information, I'm at a loss as to which appliance to make you. Because if I make you a regular dental night guard and you have an underlying sleep issue, which you may have because of X, Y, Z, and you wear it, I could really be making your health worse. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add something to that because we do the ask a question or help practices a lot with that from a coaching standpoint. Uh, there is a way to structure your night guard fee where you can credit that home sleep test towards your night guard fee. So it doesn't cost anything more. No, and, and you know what? If I had made patients night guards and then a year later, I'm thinking, you know, I've learned about sleep and I want to, and they're not wearing it or they're uncomfortable with it or something is not right and they're positive for it you know, some risk factors for sleep, I would credit them a fee towards their, you know, from their night guard towards their um, treatment. You do what's fair for the patient, but I got to a point where it, it just didn't, I just couldn't move forward with a night guard without the proper diagnostic information. Cool. Uh, we have, thank you guys for the question, by the way. This is great. A good question. Um, yeah. Aditi asked, um, where can we get, and I don't know this word, so I apologize, armamentarium? to get started like the home sleep test, home oh. sleep study test? Yeah, so there's so many things that you would need, but um, it it's not gonna cost you an arm and a leg. It's not like a CBCT if you wanted to place implants. But um, home sleep tests, there are many out there. I will tell you that I'm very specific about certain sleep tests and there's a reason being. And again, we don't have time to get into this here on an hour webinar and a plug for the course of course you know of course <laughs> but here's the thing um chad and michael awaken to sleep actually have great home sleep testing units and with any home sleep testing unit there's a couple of things that you want to have on them certain parameters um, especially for your bruxing bruxing patients but what you also have is that data will always be read by a physician and you will always get a sleep report with a diagnosis and then recommendations. So your home sleep test is not just a standalone unit. It should be part of like a whole system so that you're able to test your patients, get the report and the diagnosis and the prescription for appliance therapy. And Awaken to Sleep can definitely help you with that. Yeah. And um, if you guys want, well, we do know Dr. She's one of our clinical uh, faculty here. So we can tell you her preferences as well on a coaching call. The short answer is that we have two of the three and, you know, that we work with that she recommends that have 
the effort sensor and that can detect railroads and, and that kind of stuff. That's a whole yeah. nother conversation. Um, feel free to, to schedule a call, email in and info to wake them to sleep or respond to those emails later. We're happy and, to connect with you. And then as for the clinical um, stuff that you might need, um, it's, you know, you can use impression material, but most of the time everyone's using scanners now. And then there's a couple of ways to take the therapeutic bite. And I show really easy ways without having to invest too much money in technology that can give you a really good start without investing a ton of money and making sure that you can successfully put this in place before you do invest if you needed to. So. Yeah, great, great point. You don't need to spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars to get started in sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah. hold another topic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Emily asked a question: How many of your bruxism patients that you test had sleep apnea? I would say, I mean, it ran pretty to pretty true to the course that uh, to the study that they did, but I, I would say about seventy five percent of my patients who I felt um, were bruxing because of a sleep issue had some, had a positive um, diagnosis. And the younger kids, um, like my, my daughter, uh, she was 16 when we diagnosed her with upper airway resistance syndrome, which then can progress to full-on sleep apnea. So a lot of the younger population, um, especially, you know, uh, 20 year olds to 25 year olds with some headaches, TMD, all of those things were usually always a sleep patient, but it was the upper airway resistance syndrome, which then turns into full-on sleep apnea as they get older, after systemic um, damage can be done as well. So if you're catching them early, and this is this is the huge thing I want you to take away. This is a great question because what I'm, I'm gonna say is huge. Um, it was huge for my daughters. So my health suffered because I wasn't diagnosed for a sleep. I'm 53 years old, I'm on metformin, I'm on hypothyroid medication, I'm on adrenal support medication, and I'm on progesterone, right? And after I got treated for sleep, that's when I stopped feeling tired. My daughter and young adults who have certain um, risk factors, they start off with upper airway resistance syndrome, but if you, find that out early enough and provide the right appliance, guess what? I know my daughter's health is not going to go the way of mine because I've, I'm helping her already because she's wearing an appliance that is gonna stop that intermittent um, oxygen, no oxygen, ox fragmented sleep. So her physiology, her body is gonna still work more efficiently than mine did at her age. So it's huge. It's awesome. really huge, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I'll even give you a little more data, not necessarily on bruxism, but we have uh, clients, actually, one or two have been on the webinar today that have metrics with us. And so I can confidently tell you, based on real data from offices, thousands of tests, that um, of the patients that you test, between 28 and 35% of your patients need a test. But of that, those people that actually test, 70% of them will come back with in mild to moderate sleep apnea. Yeah. Um, so, so that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty close to what I was saying about bruxism. Yeah. But that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was teaching at, um, we were teaching in Houston. It was a live course with clinical mastery and there's about 68 doctors. And I had, I just, 
asked them questions and I said, everyone, anyone who has this symptom stand up. And it was, you know, I just asked good or if they need a coffee and all of those things. And you know what, out of probably 68 people, two thirds were standing by the end of five questions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so it's, it's pretty significant. And we're not treating the patients that already have it and we we're, new people are getting it more and more. So it's just, it really is like an epidemic, to be honest, just more and more people are, um, are being, you know, affected by this. Yeah. And if you are really curious, check out a study that showed the impact of untreated sleep apnea on that, on the current epidemic, uh, in, in COVID, um, or pandemic, I'm sorry. And so, uh, check that out. It's actually, they've got, they pulled anonymous data from like a couple hospitals, several thousand patients, and it is alarming the, yeah. the trends. So with that, I think we've answered all the questions we have. Um, I will Great. count down from 30 before we Great. shut down the meeting, but yeah. if anyone else has questions, thank you so much. And yeah. we look forward to seeing you just so you guys know, I was just informed. We have five more tickets available for our March course. So if you want to get your ticket to that course for you and your team, um, go ahead and get registered for that. And if you want another course date, then let our team know, and we will honor that same discount for any date in the next couple of months. So, and great have, questions, guys. Thank you so much. Um, have a great evening. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Mona, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this webinar. If you'd like more information on dental sleep medicine education, coaching, or home sleep testing services, please feel free to reach out to us at awakentosleep.com forward slash edu or at info at awaken2sleep.com. Thank you and have a great day.